Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, uh, the focus of this podcast is on the issue of social isolation and loneliness. We will be joined today by two distinguished experts in this area, Dr. Will Schrank, the Chief Medical Officer of Humana, and Dr. Gary Strongman, a psychiatrist and researcher from the Massachusetts General Hospital. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Oh, my pleasure. You know, before we get into the issue of social isolation, I want to turn, Gary, if you want to feel this one, you're at Mass General and you lead a division uh, or you're the director of a division called the Neural Systems Group. And you're also, you've been working for the past couple of decades with NASA in something that is called TRISH, the Translational Research Institute for Space Health. So first of all, could you tell us a little bit about what TRISH is and what that work is about um, your interest in social isolation, and maybe we'll turn to uh, Will, uh, how you connected with uh, Humana on this work. So certainly, uh, Trish is a is funded by NASA, essentially as a, um, uh, a research arm that uh, is allowed to take extra risks. So uh, we're charged with finding the out of the box solutions, research solutions to NASA's problem uh, problems they have you know, a, a variety of concerns in spaceflight. And the uh, the biggest ones are, um, are particularly big ones are related to the uh, behavioral health in spaceflight due to the isolation and extreme environment the astronauts are going to be in. Uh, I've been working with Trish for the past four years since they started in 2016. I've been working with NASA in general for a good 15 years before that. And uh, my area of personal interest is is behavioral health and um, and cognitive neuroscience. So the the topics of interest in the podcast today are of particular interest to my uh, my background. I'm excited, Gary, to dive in, uh, and I've got so many questions for you. And Will, how did you, as Humana, uh, an insurance company, uh, connect with a scientist and, and researcher at Mass General Hospital who's working with NASA? How did that happen? As a company that focuses largely on caring for uh, elderly patients, for seniors in the Medicare Advantage space, we spend a considerable amount of our time trying to better understand the social context and the, the, the social needs that are so, we all know, are so critical to um, understanding and addressing if we hope to help seniors achieve their best health. And one of the, the, the key health-related social needs that we focus on um, for a whole host of reasons is loneliness and social isolation. And as we looked into the literature, to try to understand best practices and how we can best support uh, our members and engage them and provide interventions that will help them on their path to better health and address the address issues of loneliness and isolation. The work from Trish was highly visible. The NASA folks have been thinking hard about some of these issues for a long time and for good reason. Uh, and we reached out and found a really engaging 
wonderful group of folks that were uh, interested in some of the same issues, but also thinking about um, how to address them from a different perspective and, and realize there was a real opportunity for us to partner. That's great. Thank you. And I want to come back to the issue in a few moments regarding social isolation and loneliness in space and what Gary and his colleagues have learned and, and what kind of application or translation that has to the rest of us uh, terrestrials on Earth here. But Will, why don't you paint the picture for us in terms of social isolation and loneliness? How big a problem is this in the United States? And could you even start to talk about some of the impact that you all have been monitoring and measuring the impact it has on patients? Yeah, well, it's something that we've um, we've started to measure at scale in our the population of our, the members that we serve. We found um, last year uh, about thirty percent of seniors in our Medicare Advantage plans announced or, or reported that they felt socially isolated. It's not a small number. It's, a, it's really a meaningful proportion of the population that we serve. And we know that those, are, those numbers have gone up meaningfully since the, the global pandemic has impacted the ability of, of all of us to go out and engage with friends and family I think all of us have sort of dealt with new issues around how we're interacting with others, either at work or personally. And for seniors, the burden's been even greater. We'll survey over 3 million of our members and ask them about their social needs. The early signals are we've seen a meaningful and statistically significant increase over that baseline of 30% this year. We'll share final numbers when we're able to, when we're going to put out a report. But it has a big impact. It has a big impact on on the health and the healthcare costs of our members. We see that those patients that report that they're lonely are four times more likely to be rehospitalized after they're discharged from the hospital. They consistently have more require more health services, and they consistently have higher healthcare costs. It's not sort of just a social issue. It's an issue that has meaningful impact on the health and health outcomes of the members we serve. So it's something that we really pay a great deal of attention to. That's a shocking number. I spent years with my colleagues working on this issue of re-hospitalization or readmission after someone leaves the hospital. And, uh, you know, we focus on a lot of issues, uh, you know, up till now, not really focused on loneliness and social isolation. But given what you're saying, you're saying it increases the risk four times the message there is is anyone who's interested in readmissions and rehospitalizations, this is something you can't ignore. The 30% I've seen in the literature, and again, the literature is a little bit all over the place, but I've seen those numbers higher. Um, I'm just curious as to your reading of the literature, and are you surprised it's, it's only 30%? Because I've seen numbers as high as 50% or more in terms of uh, older adults having social isolation and loneliness. There are um, a variety of different measures that are used. We use the UCLA loneliness scale. It's a four-question questionnaire. I think our numbers aren't sort of out of the ballpark. It is notable, though, that this is a a population that we do a lot proactively to try to address and support. So we do have a number of interventions that we offer for our members who do report that they're lonely. And we we hope that that's one of the reasons that our numbers aren't higher, is that we're we're offering services to try to uh, give them alternatives and to engage them. Clearly, you talked about rehospitalization, and and you also mentioned increased utilization and costs. 
you know, I would assume, look, you're a payer. Um, and so clearly reducing avoidable costs is going to be on your mind. And so this has got to be one of the big drivers. Do you want to say something about that? I mean, you know, you clearly Humana, and I just want to say I have tremendous admiration and respect for what you all have been doing, the uh, focus you have on older adults and uh, how much resource and great intention and work you've been putting behind it. So I tremendous respect, but at the same time, this is an issue of saving money and saving it appropriately. I just want to kind of let you respond to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the the financial issue is just a reflection of the amount of health services and health resources that are necessary to take care of people who report that they're lonely. It's a signal that those patients aren't managing their chronic diseases as well. Zev, you know better than anyone that a massive driver of healthcare costs in this in this country is related to the management of patients with complex chronic conditions. And if those patients have social needs that impact their ability to follow recommended treatment regimes, adhere to their medications, adhere to the healthy lifestyles and diets that are recommended, it leads to admissions to the hospital. They cost money, but nobody wants to be admitted to the hospital. Nobody wants to have an exacerbation of their heart failure, or no one wants to have an exacerbation of their COPD. When I referred to elevated healthcare costs, it's really a reflection of the fact that we know that being lonely is related to worse health outcomes. And we have we have an obligation for our members to try to be as proactive as possible to address a nip at the bud, any of those sources or any of those those reasons that lead to these exacerbations and chronic conditions. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to go after them in a fulsome and holistic kind of way. So I'm gonna, in a minute, I'm going to turn back to you, Will, and, and ask you about what you've learned about this problem and what you're doing to combat it. But I have to say, I am so curious, Gary, as to, you know, as much as I, I've been following space travel for decades now, uh, you know, up to the present moment uh, with Elon Musk and what's going on there, but, you know, I've never, ever thought about the issue of social isolation and loneliness as it pertains to astronauts and, and space travel. And so could you say a word about, you know, what you've discovered in terms of that aspect of behavioral health of astronauts and, you know, what you've learned and what kinds of things you're thinking about? Sure. As it stands today, uh, astronauts, I would say on a whole, wouldn't be considered a, a, a lonely group. They are certainly socially isolated. Difficult to go outside or go out with your friends when uh, you're on the International Space Station. Even going to the moon, we actually don't expect tremendous loneliness because we have relatively immediate contact with Earth. What Trish is interested in in particular is the long-duration exploration missions like going to Mars. Uh, and, And when you go to Mars, Uh, everything changes. Uh, The biggest one from a loneliness uh, standpoint, an isolation standpoint, is that Mars is a long way away, uh, sufficiently far that just the the speed of light takes five minutes to 22 minutes to get between Mars and Earth one, one way. And so communication delays of that sort prohibit any real time communication. You'll not, you won't be able to pick up the phone and call home. Uh, you won't be able to consult uh, one-on-one with your doctor. It will all have to be uh, texting or uh, uh, similar uh, email sort of medium that's going to be used. 
And that really puts a major kink in the ability to to communicate and feel connected with with folks that are just that far away. And that's what what Trish is is seeking to help solve or manage. Uh, from in terms of effects, we know that of course social isolation leads to uh, loneliness, leads to a reduced sense of well-being, can lead to depression or torpor, uh, a lower low energy state where you just don't feel like doing much of anything. It can also adversely affect the immune system. My own lab is investigating its effects on cognitive function and learning abilities. There's even evidence uh, that blood flow to the brain is altered uh, associated with uh, social isolation. So there's a wide range of physiological changes the, that this can affect, all of which are of potential concern for astronauts. You know, it's one thing if one of us is socially isolated lonely, but you've got an astronaut in a multi-billion dollar, you know, uh, situation out there in space. And all those negative impacts uh, have tremendous consequences. I mean, you, you want your, obviously, you want your astronaut sharp. And the last thing you'd want is a depressed person out there. Again, I've never, ever really thought about that. This is just fascinating. Will, coming back to you, what have you actually learned, again, here on Earth, in terms of the uh, social uh, isolation, loneliness, the impact it has? What sorts of interventions have you tried? And I'm sure, I know, uh, just looking at the literature, some of them have, have been successful and some not so successful. So I'm just very, very curious as to the learnings you've gleaned. Yeah, well, you know, we've, we've tried a handful of different types of interventions uh, all of which we're, we're rolling out in ways that we can study them carefully and evaluate them and learn from them. I'd say we're still rel rather early in our journey of determining what our best practices are. But um, I'll give you a sense of some of the examples of partnerships that we've started um, and, um, and what we're, we're sort of learning uh, in, this, in our, these early stages. So one of our partners is a company called PAPA. Uh, Papa is a company that um, that hires essentially college students to serve as a type of a grand grandkid on demand, um, and they assign a college student to a socially isolated senior, and that college student will spend a certain number of hours, let's say five or eight hours a week, with the senior, both to talk and for companionship, but also sometimes to help with light housework at the house or to pick up a, uh, something on the way um, in order to uh, assist with some of the sort of the, the activities, the daily activities that, that the senior needs. We've, we initially piloted in one market. We've now expanded to five markets. In that first market, we did see meaningful reductions in not only our members' um, reports of their perceptions of loneliness, we also saw meaningful reductions in hospitalizations and use of acute care services. Uh, so it really kind of started to prove out the, the, the premise. It was a rather small sample, and now we're, we're, we're testing it at a much larger scale. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, the, the test took a different turn uh, with, the, um, with the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, and uh, it, it made it impossible for the, the, for the, the, the Papa Pals, the, which is what they call them, the college students, to, um, 
to meet face to face with seniors. They rapidly transformed their um, approach to being a virtual one, uh, largely telephonic, sometimes with FaceTime or, or video calls. And uh, our early feedback is that it's worked out quite well, that, that seniors have appreciated the flexibility. And if anything, there's more touch bases. There, the, the, time, the duration of the visits may be shorter, but there's more frequent um, points of, of, of touching base. And that seems to have been, it seems to be well received anecdotally. We'll have a much more, um, you know, sort of rigorous evaluation. We work with um, uh, the Institute of Aging has created something called a friendship line. And in settings where we don't have somebody we could send to the home, uh, we offer uh, this friendship line, which is sort of exactly what it sounds like. It's a, a, someone who's trained on the other end of the line who um, has a continuous and sort of uh, develops a relationship with and has continual um, outreach to and interactions with a senior that that um, that self-reports as lonely. This is another um, pilot. It's at rather large scale uh, that we're testing currently. So I don't have great, uh, I don't have you know sort of definitive results, but also have had a number a number of really positive anecdotes about our members that have uh, found. Um, that they've had, you know, sort of meaningful connections, and uh, it's improved their their mental state, and also uh, some have reported their, you know, it's helped them to sort of on their path to better health. We we've we also uh, did a test with silver sneakers, and that test is also currently un underway, but has been paused uh, due to the due to COVID, where the focus was to identify our members that reported uh, as lonely or socially isolated and referring them, uh, if we're conducting it as a randomized trial, referring them to, to silver sneakers groups uh, for as an, an, an exercise group, in part because the exercise is valuable, but in part also because there is, um, there's a social feature to those, to those classes. Um, again, would that's that's a test that has been paused because of the because of the virus, but is uh, it's underway, and the the plan is to do that at large scale and to, in a in a randomized controlled way to be able to really get some good data out of it. So we have a number of studies underway. I think I you know we're still in the process of defining what those best practices are, but we've got a number of rich partnerships, uh, and uh, we hope to you know better sort of improve the science around this in the months and years to come. What kinds of interventions are you thinking about with NASA to relieve uh, social isolation and loneliness uh, on long-term travel, space travel? And do you think that those are interventions uh, or technologies that could be applied uh, here? I was trying to think of the logistics of getting an AstroPal out to a, a spacecraft or to Mars, but yeah, that's probably a bit beyond the pale. Um, so, uh, the there's a variety of um, uh, what NASA calls countermeasures. I will probably default to calling them that. Uh, that are used uh, in this sort of setting uh, for ISS and current crew members. Uh, that tends to focus on selection for adaptable candidates. Obviously, that's not not really an option on Earth either. Um, they do fair amount of routine. They're managing their routine, which uh, helps. This is there's an article recently in, in uh, May 28 Nature uh, by Brian Owens that describes sort of the current approaches NASA takes 
um, for for managing social isolation on board the ISS International Space Station. And so they, um, one of the things that astronauts commonly point to, as I mentioned, is is uh, calling home, calling family, friends, even medical personnel or psychologists, uh, celebrities, heroes, uh, interactions with them. Uh, yes, uh, astronauts have uh, favorite celebrities and heroes as well, and and enjoy opportunities to uh, to engage with them, uh, surprise parties, so to speak, when they send up special food and things like that. All of those do go away when you're talking about trips to Mars. So um, there's a bunch of things that Trish is looking at right now. Uh, we're looking at uh, some simpler things like technology that may improve sleep. Uh, just by an improving sleep, you improve your stress uh, resistance and resilience. Um, the, there's uh, some technologies looking at shining light onto the head to improve brain function or uh, stimulate the brain electrically or magnetically to uh, counteract things like uh, loneliness or other behavioral health concerns. We're even looking at um, ways to unobtrusively detect and monitor uh, states such as loneliness. Right now, we don't have any particular good ways of doing that, but we're, we're looking to, uh, to develop those um, so that we're able to catch things early, essentially. Uh, some of the further out options that we have include uh, uh, looking at virtual reality, that might uh, bring crews back to Earth, so to speak. It may be time delayed, but uh, you'd still get to see Earth as they do from the, the cupola or the viewing window on board space station, or uh, essentially develop a virtual window uh, and biofeedback. Uh, the one that I thought was similar to the AstroPals is I know a number of um, areas or uh, groups are looking at robotic companions uh, as um, uh, sort of an, you know, a pet pet dog or cat, but robotic, so you don't have to take the extra food and, and deal with other things. Uh, and that actually turned out to be sim uh, similar to the growing food situation on board the space station, where when they were growing onions and lettuce, they actually kind of tended to think of it as, a, as their friend on board, uh, to be able to see something nice and green. Even virtual therapists are, are things that we're looking at, but all of those are in very early stages at this point. You you said far out, but I mean, VR, virtual reality is is happening now. We're using it in hospitals across the country. I'm just, I wonder, and even the robotic companions, those those sound like the, you know very very doable and even proximal solutions and and ones that could translate uh, here. So I'm just kind of curious. And and will I don't know if you at all uh, been using VR or robotic companions, or are you guys thinking about that? We have well, we started doing a test with um, an avatar that uh, it's called buddy that um that interacts with uh with seniors largely around managing uh chronic disease so it's more an engagement tool around adhering to one's medications or treatment plans uh but it's interesting the the seniors that have interacted with buddy have um have given us really good feedback on you know they joke around with buddy and have Seem to be appreciating uh, Buddy as a, as a as a companion, in addition to a partner uh, to trying to address their chronic disease management needs. But I think these are really really interesting options, particularly at a time where it's hard to get into people's homes because of uh, because of the the risk of contracting uh, a viral illness. 
these are you know the these these sort of alternative uh, approaches are have to be front and center as we think about new opportunities and new things we want to test and that's one of the reasons we're so excited to talk to the the you know Gary and the folks at Trish I'd like to add there that yes the uh pandemic has really uh, made the, the challenges on Earth much more similar to, uh, to in-flight because, like, like we said earlier, you can't send your pal out to uh, somebody's home just like you wouldn't be able to send somebody to a spacecraft. And so you have to find other alternative ways of, of dealing with it. The long-duration journeys, we, of course, have the, the bigger challenge of uh, communication lags. Uh, but yes, a lot of these these technologies have been tried on Earth, and that's part of why we're looking at them is that they're still in early stages here. But if they work well on Earth, uh, then they they may well be applicable and and uh, uh, applicable to spaceflight for um, long duration miss- missions in particular. And Gary, can I pick up on on this point you made about the sort of the impact of the pandemic from your observation uh, and and perhaps data you've seen or collected, what have you seen uh, the impact of the pandemic on mental health? If you have sort of a, a brief, some brief stats or brief commentary on that, or, or even specifically on social isolation and loneliness. Uh, so most of my work is focused, again, on, on the NASA side, and there's been relatively, relatively little effect there. Um, I would say little in the sense that all of us are, are feeling the effects uh, working from home for, you know, months on end here. Um, but uh, I, there have been um, some uh, reports recently of astronauts seeing the pandemic play out coming and coming back to Earth and, and realizing that, okay, they're going to be going from one isolation situation to another isolation situation. They were looking forward to, you know, coming back and seeing all their family and having a, a party or whatever. And, and a lot of that on both both the takeoff end and the landing end is now, you know, extra quarantine and extra isolation. And, and that's hard. It's similar to when occasionally a uh, the flight schedule is disrupted and somebody finds out, you know, you're going to be in space for an extra month. Um, that 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 is expectations uh, mean a lot, I think, and so when you're expecting it to end at a particular time and it doesn't, uh, that's difficult. And it's even harder, as we all know now, I think, or are more aware of now. It's uh, even more difficult when you don't know what to expect. You don't know when it might end, and uh, I think that's that's part of the challenge that still needs to be addressed uh, on the science side. You know, it's it's sort of reading in between the lines and listening to you, you know, I've always thought of astronauts as, you know, it's sort of the right stuff. These are, are very strong, highly motivated, obviously highly intelligent, but they must be selected for sort of their emotional stability. And at least that's my assumption. And so hearing you talk about the astronauts coming back, sort of waiting to to reengage with their families and friends and, and waiting to socialize and being disappointed when they can't, it really, for me, even underscores even more than before, you know, if the astronauts are so affected by social isolation and loneliness, it really is for the rest of us. I mean, it's huge. And so I'm just, I never really thought about it. When you juxtapose that in the way you were talking about it, it really sort of, I don't know, it sort of emphasizes the, how serious the problem this is. They're, They're highly selected and highly trained, but they're still human. And so you know, everybody has, uh, you, you get your expectations up for something and it turns out that's not going to work out. Well, that's going to be disappointing. 
generally speaking. Yes, they're exceptionally professional uh, and and handle it very very well. Uh, but it's it still can be challenging, and you know there have been extra challenges where some you know very uh, serious event occurred on Earth while somebody was in space, and and dealing with that is is a challenge, uh, not unlike the uh, the long duration isolation sorts of challenges, just being away from the people that you want to want to be with or help support, and so it becomes a, a very a very difficult thing, even if you have all of that um, prior selection and training. Thank you. Well, Humana launched uh, an initiative uh, or a campaign called Far From Alone. Can you can you say something about that? Yeah. So one of the reasons we thought it was really important to draw more attention to this challenge, to this problem of social isolation and loneliness is that there's a stigma around sort of this as a problem. And uh, we want to make sure that we're normalizing this this issue and that our members feel comfortable talking about it. It's, uh, it's a real problem. It causes meaningful morbidity for, and, you know, experience and, and behavioral health consequences and also physical health consequences. And um, we can only address it if it's something we all feel comfortable talking about. So we, we really wanted to figure out ways to talk about it more openly, create more awareness of the issue and the problem, and to help normalize not just how common it is, but uh, that it's something that we, we can address if we talk about it together, if we work on it together. Um, and frankly, um, you know, the idea of, uh, of, uh, of creating a broader lens, one that recognizes that there's lots of reasons that one could be lonely. For example, one could be spend a long time in a, in a spaceship, um, brings a different kind of um, normalcy, not that that's normal, but it you know, makes it more of a conversation that we can all have. And frankly, who doesn't think that you know, getting in a spaceship is cool? So it just felt like there was an opportunity here for us to, to lean in and get people to to engage in this discussion and and be more open and honest and transparent about the concerns that they're having. Yeah, I, again, I, I can't say enough about that, that, you know, to create that sort of awareness and uh, and normalize something that is just quite honestly, it's so prevalent. And to the point I think, you know, Gary was making before, it's, it is almost, I, I never thought about this metaphor, but it's, we're with the pandemic, we're almost kind of all locked up in our little spaceships, our little cabins. I know, you know, I feel that way often in my 10 by 10 office. I want to ask you both uh, what I'm now calling the Oval Office question, which is uh, the election is coming up, but I want you to imagine something. It's now January 2021, and you both are sitting in the Oval Office with the President of the United States, whoever that uh, may be. And you've been given literally three to five minutes, because uh, obviously uh, POTUS is busy. Um, you've been given three to five minutes to give uh, you know, one or two uh, recommendations, high-level strategic directions or objectives that the president should focus on in terms of improving health care. And obviously, given your expertise on the issue of mental health and social isolation, I'm very, very curious, what would you say? to the President of the United States, this is what we should be doing. Gary, why don't you take it first? Sure. Um, 
Yeah, that that certainly is the challenging question. And uh, I, I think it pretty much boils down to two topics for me. One is to make mental health coverage more accessible. Uh, that's there, there has been some progress in the last decade or so in that direction, but there's still relatively limited uh, accessibility. I think that will help to some degree with the ability for people to talk about it if it's uh, broadly accessible. And then uh, to promote the importance of maintaining behavioral health, uh, the importance of identifying and engaging with people who are at risk. Uh, and that's something that, you know, it's, it's not only uh, typically ignored, but marginalized and, um, and in many ways and in some groups more than others. And I think that is to the detriment of us all. That's great. Will, what, what are you going to follow up uh, with to the president? I think I would focus on sort of, uh, I would even take it one step uh, to a, one step higher. We as a country are, I think we'd all agree, we're wildly over-indexed on healthcare services and healthcare investment and under-indexed on investing in social services. And it's hard. It is hard to, to kind of, in the, in the current political atmosphere, to cut spending uh, for healthcare because it's perceived as somebody's losing something. And it's, it's also hard to get new extra dollars in a time of deficit, meaningful deficits to invest more in social services. The challenge is somehow, is, are there ways to reallocate existing healthcare dollars to social services to go upstream, to try to prevent disease, to try to reduce the need for subsequent health services use by addressing the social context in which patients and people and all Americans live. And uh, I think there's a way to do that and uh, create a healthier society and one that uh, is more sort of economically stable as well, one that spends less in total on healthcare. Uh, Doing so requires some really sort of fundamental changes in how we think about how we fund social services and whether today a lot of that's happening by default through prepaid healthcare, uh, through prepaid insurance companies, like in Medicare Advantage, where we're paid a certain amount of money for managing a population. We have a business context to go upstream and invest in social services. We need to think much more holistically as a country about how we're going to do that. And if we do, we can have much more, uh, a much more holistic mechanism of addressing these social needs like loneliness and social isolation, and really sort of invest in health rather than in healthcare. If I were POTUS, I might, I might ask you, so are you saying, or maybe if we had the head of CMS or HHS in the room with us as you guys are talking, uh, are you saying that uh, we should expand the payment for, let's say, Medicare Advantage to so that we can include more social determinants of health? Or do you think we should you know, be diverting some of the funding uh, of health care to other avenues around transportation or food security, things like that? I think that, that the structure of Medicare Advantage gives us this unique opportunity to take health care dollars, dollars that are you know, earmarked for health care, uh, and gives us a business context to take those and reallocate those dollars and go upstream and address social needs. 
uh, in a fee-for-service healthcare system, there is no way to reallocate those dollars. Do- you know, doctors are getting paid for the services they deliver. In a in a, a setting where any provider um, uh, is is taking meaningful risk and it's in value a value-based arrangement where they're taking financial risk, particularly if they're prepaid, if there's a, a some sort of a capitated payment, they have that ability to take dollars that are earmarked for healthcare and reinvest. Uh, those in social services and go upstream. So I don't feel strongly that it has to be Medicare Advantage. You know, I think providers who are taking or engage, if there's more holistic uh, participation in value-based arrangements and providers taking meaningful risk, I think it starts to get to the same thing. I, I do think the Medicare Advantage plans, however, have the scale and the experience and the sort of the general uh, philosophy to be in a good position to make um, scalable, sustainable investments and partnerships around social needs and social determinants. So I do think that Medicare Advantage has sort of been a beacon here in terms of trying to think about this. Uh, but you know, there are structural ways, whether it's whether it's giving risk to the health plan or whether it's giving risk to the provider or somehow sharing the risk between the two of them, that allows us to think. Um, in a much in a, a much more holistic way about promoting and allocating dollars uh, to best do just that promote health and not necessarily provide healthcare services. Gary and Will, I want to thank you. You did a great job in the Oval Office. Uh, I think you gave the president a lot to think about uh, and some good direction. Gary, I want to give you uh, thirty seconds. Any any sort of final thoughts or comments about the the issue of social isolation, loneliness, or mental health in general? Uh, well, I, I think it's uh, important to, to think of all different groups that might experience uh, loneliness, social, social isolation, so forth, and, and how we may be able to uh, serve them or serve their needs. Uh, astronauts are one example, and, and we do a fair amount of research on, uh, on ground-based analogs, kind of pretending, pretend astronauts, as it were, to see what sort of effects happen there. But they're are, as we have been talking about here, uh, elders that are enclosed, those who are not necessarily elderly, but in hospitals for long periods, as well as those who are living at home alone uh, and just don't have much or any family or friends, uh, homeless others. We need to think about all of those different groups and and how we might be able to reach them and and develop approaches that are are scalable across that, that span. And I think that's where the work, the NASA work actually is helpful because we have to work in, in such a constrained environment that uh, it's sort of a minimalistic environment. And we think that developments there will, will generalize uh, to, to many other populations on Earth. Mm-hmm. One question which has been tugging at me for the last few weeks is we're, we're in a moment in time clearly where talk, uh, talk about another sort of level of awareness uh, around some of the disparities of care and the inequities of care. And I know that uh, the science uh, has a lot of catching up to do here, as do all of us. But I'm just wondering, with for either one of you, any awareness around any research or studies in terms of looking at the differences, uh, let's say, between African-Americans, uh, Latinos, or any other sort of minority group versus the general population in terms of uh, this issue of social isolation, loneliness? And I know the whole issue of mental health is uh, opening up a whole other uh, topic, but uh, just a, any sort of brief commentary on that? Yeah, well, we've done a lot of work on that, actually. We've um, assessed our own survey data uh, by ethnicity 
and we've adjusted for socioeconomic status, and even after adjusting for socioeconomic status, we see considerably higher uh, rates of social isolation and loneliness in African-American and Hispanic patients than we do in white patients. Um, it is part of, of just a broader conversation we're all having about the structural causes of inequity in our society um, and highlights the fact that, you know, there are so many reasons that we have disparities in health outcomes, disparities in health care, and a lot of them do come from these upstream sources, these social, uh, the social context in which Americans live. Uh, that 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 have such a big impact on their 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 downstream health. Um, so I do think this is an important part of this broader discussion around promoting equity and addressing um, addressing racism in this country. Yeah, that's super helpful. I, I was not aware of that. Thank you for sharing that in terms of the increased prevalence of of social isolation and loneliness in African Americans and Latino. Are you at the point yet of at Humana of, of acting on that, or are you still studying it? Because I and I know that some of this stuff is is still very very recent uh, work. Yeah, I mean, this is so. Of course, we are trying to act on it. The goal is to the you know build sort of the be systematic and build an evidence base so that we're we're targeting the right intervention to the right member, um, and that that'll come come from the evidence that we gain that we glean from from these these experiments that we have in the field we really need to have a better understanding are there certain you know the so culture is clearly an important part of um of an individual's personal you know experience in terms of social engagement and to the extent that um there are meaningful differences at baseline between different ethnicities and their and their reports of social isolation, there's likely meaningful differences in terms of which interventions, which types of interactions are going to be most helpful. So that's something we really want to learn. Uh, and we'll study, we will study carefully and try to be as targeted as we can and as personalized as we can and as personal as we can in terms of delivering the right intervention, the right channel to the right patient to try to address these social needs. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I know we're, we're time is up for us today. Uh, this has been just fantastic. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and, and learning from you. Uh, uh, so I just want to thank our guests, Dr. Will Schrank and, and Dr. Gary Strongman, uh, both of you and, and your colleagues for, for bringing just awareness to this topic of social isolation and loneliness and bringing intelligence to it and intention and the actions you, you're taking and will be taking in the future. Uh, I can't say enough. So, so thank you so much. Well, thank you, and uh, a big thank you to Gary, who's uh, I agree is just an incredible source of knowledge and information, and I think really helps to tell the story uh, and normalize the issue. And thank you, Zev, for giving us this opportunity. It's been a pleasure being here with you both. Oh, really, my pleasure. And I'm going to turn to the audience now. And I, I do every episode. I'd like to conclude by thanking. Uh, all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are taking care of patients, uh, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and, and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends, uh, please take care of yourself. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well.